Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. This is Dana Dennis, and I'm one of the hosts of the Anthropology Channel. Today, I'm bringing you a wonderful interview with Dr. Rosalind Fredericks of the Gallatin School at NYU about her new book, Garbage Citizenship, Vital Infrastructures of Labor in Dakar, Senegal, from Duke University Press in 2018. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the New Books Network on the Anthropology Channel. I'm here today with author and professor Rosalind Fredericks from um, NYU, and we are talking about her wonderful new book, Garbage Citizenship, Vital Infrastructures of Labor in Dakar, Senegal, which came out from Duke University Press in 2018. So, um, Rosalind, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure. Um, so I'm a, I'm a geographer. I'm an urban cultural geographer. And um, my research is all based in Dakar. So this book is a extension of um, my doctoral research work, uh, which I conducted um, all in Dakar, basically between 2006 and 2015, you know, at the sort of very end, the doctoral part of it being the beginning of that. And then um, it morphed and sort of changed along the way. Um, so I, I, I came to Dakar having done my master's on a sort of related topic, interested in the sort of intersection of urban social movements and kind of a, a material approach to the environment. And that led me to an interest in waste and sanitation, um, which then opened my eyes to what turned out to be an incredibly dynamic um, and, and quite visible social movement during the, the years that I was, I was working on this. Um, so I ended up paying quite a lot of attention to the, the, the trash workers union in Dakar during that time. And this, this book extended out of that. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was really 
um, wonderful to read um, the close attention that you were paying to um, the real physical realities of trash as a as a very mundane and yet very vital part of urban life and very intimately connected with the politics, as you demonstrate really well. Um, so the introduction of the book opens basically with presenting us with two um, different models of what garbage citizenship might look like. Um, first, as you say, there's the um, the sanitation workers strike in 2007 and the residents of Dakar are sort of filling up the streets with trash in solidarity with those sanitation workers. And then um, you flash back a little bit historically and talk about the Set Setal movement of youth cleaning up trash in 1998 and 1999, which was a really important uh, moment in the formation of youth political consciousness. And these are really great um, illustrations of um, the fact that the production and the removal of trash is really deeply embedded in social and moral and political contexts. So um, can you explain a little bit what these two incidents, what these two moments tell us about the specific context of Dakar, Senegal, and how they set the stage for your analysis in the book? Sure. Um, I mean, so, you know, first off, for those who don't know, the, the context very well. I mean, Senegal is sort of famous for its vibrant democratic scene, for its vibrant sort of history and tradition of social movements and um, democratic movements um, that often are quite associated with the urban sphere. Um, and the most famous of the of of the of the sort of youth movements that punctuate Senegal's short independence history, you know, since 1960, um, is the Setatal movement of 1988, which has gone down in the history books as this pivotal moment, um, representing a sort of shift in Senegalese politics from a kind of more gerontocratic mode and sort of rule by elders to a more kind of meritocracy mode where young people, you know, if, if, if they're, um, you know, armed with um, education or good intentions or innovative ideas or creativity can actually sort of reshape the, the social sphere. Um, so that movement is quite famous and looms large in the memories and imaginations of, of the Dakar Wa, but also of Senegalese um, political studies and, and, and studies of, of democracy in, in West Africa and I would say in Sub-Saharan Africa as a whole. And yet there is this story that has never been told about Setsetal, which is its, its deep connection to cleaning and by implication to garbage and to the sort of materiality of the urban space. Setsetal in Wolof means be clean, make clean. And it was always rooted in a sort of ideology of purification, purify what was seen as a kind of corrupt um, political field, purify a city that was um, sort of groaning under the strains of, at that point, quite harsh structural adjustment measures that had um, urban public services, you know, um, uh, grinding to a halt and thus garbage literally, you know, building up in the public sphere. Um, so the movement has always been known as a, a, a kind of act of purification by these sort of uppity young people, these new young actors from different quite a variety of, of um, social backgrounds. So not just educated youth, but, um, you know, working class youth, um, et cetera, 
Um, but what I found in studying the trash workers movement later, a couple of decades later, was that that movement in 1988 had not just been about purification in a kind of ideological sense. It had actually been quite rooted in very concrete actions by these young people to cleanse the urban public sphere, to cleanse the city via action in their own neighborhoods. And a lot of that was actually garbage management. Um, so that then I, I chronicle through the book, the sort of transformation of that kind of early, um, pretty radical youth social movement into a syndicalist movement, into this union movement that becomes <clears throat> probably the most, um, at this point, well-known urban um, union movement to shape the city of Dakar in the last couple of decades. And I think the, the connections between those two movements, those two moments is quite important because it's, it's that sort of legacy of entering into politics, of entering into a kind of role in the city, a uh, more intentional role in the city that led to uh, radical politics around uh, unionism, but in the, the field of discard. So in the field of, of, of urban waste. Great. Um, yeah. And one of the other things that you highlight in the introduction, I just want to note for our listeners, um, is that you talk about um, the three factors of gender, generation and religion as being really important to your analysis of these material relationships and um, the politics of garbage infrastructure. So I'm sure those themes will kind of keep recurring throughout our um, conversation, but I just wanted to point that out for the listeners. We've talked about generation um, already, as you were saying, there's movement from sort of a ger- gerontocratic politics to a youth politics. Um, but then chapter one, um, governing disposability, there's quite a lot that actually happens between the late 1980s and your field work in 2006, 2007. Um, there's a lot of volatility and turnover in the organizations and the management systems of Dakar's garbage sector. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the causes and the consequences of that volatility and all that turnover? Yeah. So I think, I mean, a major, one of the major stories that I'm trying to tell here is a story of austerity. So there's, a you know, of course, a uh, a huge realm of work exploring the very nefarious impacts of structural adjustment in sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere. Um, <clears throat> but there is much less analysis of, in a very textured way of exactly how structural adjustment programs impacted <clears throat> cities and, you know, reconfigured um, local politics and reconfigured interfaced with these other kind of tectonic changes at play in African societies during this time related to gender generation and religion. So one of the kind of key interventions here is sort of tracing in a very textured and nuanced way through this very specific sort of case study of this one urban public service, the municipal trash sector in Dakar and its transformation in the wake of structural adjustment and then sort of refined, you know, um, quite varied, approaches to neoliberalism that followed to, to neoliberal um, governance that followed after that. So this is, this chapter is sort of the political economy chapter where I'm trying to intervene in a way to tell a different story of neoliberal adjustment through 
the trash sector through the incredible you know volatility in this one urban public service and what we see i've got this chart that you know details the incredible number of really massive institutional transformations that took place just in the trash sector during um, this time with over i think 12 uh, major institutional reconfigurations so we see this urban public service going from you know being completely privatized which of course was the sort of immediate um, impact of structural adjustment back to um, full nationalization and to a range of different sort of hybrid institutional configurations in between the two and back and forth, which is a, a, a different story than is usually told of structural adjustment, which assumes that it's just this sort of unidirectional process where we're getting, um, you know, a shift to privatization, a shift to, you know, a certain kind of approach to urban governance. But here what we see is that the actual way that these things got battled out in a city like Dakar that has an incredibly rich, um, you know, that is an incredibly rich um, democratic context was in fits and starts and through all of these different sort of approaches to governing a kind of chaotic sphere where people were being, the you know, calamitous social consequences were prompting people to um, do things they wouldn't have otherwise done, like the Set Settel movement in 1988, which was very much, you know, a reaction to structural adjustment and austerity politics, um, but to, you know, other consequences, some of those being related to the power play, this eternal power play that we see in Senegal and a lot of other global South cities, but certainly African cities, between the local government and the national state. And Dakar is a very sort of macrocephalic capital Almost half of the urban residents in Senegal live in Dakar. It, it is a, you know, a very swollen, large city in a fairly small country. So it has an oversized importance. Um, but it's also overly important in a, demo, in, in, a, in a democratic sense in terms of like shaping election, uh, elections and, um, and politics in Senegal. So, you know, we, the causes and consequences of this volatility are are myriad, but some of them are, you know, just an incredible burden that is placed on the urban working poor. And an expression of that is the urban working poor in the municipal sanitation sector, which was definitely not the lowest of the low because it was a municipal job, but, you know, not the best job um, in the city, certainly. And we see this, what I call devolution of infrastructure onto labor, where this lack of investment in infrastructure in the city, this lack of investment in, um, you know, uh, in, in, in um, development um, and other, other resources in the city is, 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 is borne by bodies, right? It, it's burdened, it, it devolves onto working bodies that have to shoulder more and more of the burdens of making the city work, keeping it clean, keeping it moving forward. So that's a major kind of cause and consequence. But then, of course, the consequence of that then is those overly burdened bodies mobilizing and resisting that kind of um, material, you know, expression of austerity. Uh, so those are sort of some of them. You also get this incredible, um, as I said, kind of volatility just within the political sphere um, and this competition between the, the local and the national state. One expression of which is the fact that the sort of 
because the 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 budget that it, it, that these governments has to control is sort of ever shrinking in the time of austerity there's even more competition to control it and these you know these political personalities these key players start to very much you know um, um, sort of battle um, over these incredibly shrinking budgets um, to to the nth degree with with of course terrible consequences for the people who work in in these sectors but also for those who live in the city and have to bear the brunt of um, you know diminishing urban public services basically that's great thank you um yeah, it's a really great chapter because, as you say, you're showing not just um, the sort of unidirectional um, imposition of these structural adjustment programs and neoliberalism, but then also um, people pushing back and taking up the burdens of keeping their neighborhoods and keeping their city clean um, in really interesting ways. Um, one of the uh, themes that comes up in chapter two um, is, of course, labor, vital infrastructures of labor is the title of the chapter. Um, and one of the things that I found so interesting is that um, as you're writing about the Sets Hall movement as a youth volunteer political movement where um, they're sort of out voluntarily doing a lot of cleaning, um, and then there's a shift to um, turning it into um actual paid labor, um, the professionalization of trash services. Um, and then, of course, as you say, that's um, a process that um, requires a lot of working out <laughs> the, the kinks as different um, agencies are sort of competing with each other for scarce resources. Um, so do you want to just kind of talk us through um, chapter two and the, um, the interventions and the material that you're discussing there? Absolutely. Um, and I, you know, I think it makes sense to, you know, just uh, sort of speak to the kind of wider infrastructure literature that I'm intervening in here, um, because there is this just very exciting burgeoning field of what I would call critical infrastructure studies that has emerged over the last 10 or so years. Um, a lot of it happening really in the last five years that seeks to explode this idea of infrastructure as just sort of structural, you know, scaffolding systems of sort of, you know, of girders and cables and things like that. And to really think about it in a much broader, more comprehensive sense. Um, and I think you get, so I, you know, I came to Dakar very interested in the cultural politics of trash infrastructure because I'm interested in culture and I'm a cultural geographer and that was sort of where my concerns were at and, and clearly where the sort of exciting things were happening. Um, but the, the best way into that was via the question of labor. So this is a kind of bridging of a kind of cultural politics of labor with what I call a sort of um, materialist, new materialist reading of infrastructure that thinks about infrastructure in a much kind of broader sense than it has kind of classically been thought about. And the kind of three ways that I'm intervening in thinking about infrastructure in a broader way or expanding our definition of infrastructure is in thinking about it as sort of recalibrating how, how we think of the sort of material, the social, the affective elements of infrastructure through a focus on labor. Um, and I, I think that labor really gets us to, uh, especially the social side, what, what people make up infrastructure how is labor infrastructural? 
Um, but certainly in this context of austerity, where, as I was saying before, the burdens of infrastructure increasingly get devolved onto people, onto working bodies, um, where there actually is less sort of physical infrastructure, sort of steel plates, et cetera. And there are more bodies, right, that, that make up the infrastructure. The more, there, there's more vitality. There are more vital elements to the infrastructure than there is, um, you know, the, the, the um, sort of classic elements of infrastructure. Um, and then that gets us to thinking much more about the materiality of infrastructure and how labor intersects with, um, you know, uh, garbage in this realm um, and the, the key sort of impacts of those, those deep intersections. But then the affective side is if you focus on labor, then you have to focus on the meaning of labor and what drives people's conceptions of work and um, the meaning of work for them. And that's where a kind of much broader sense of the infrastructure of discard in this setting came about was through focusing on labor and the meaning of labor and the practice, the feelings, the affective um, elements of laboring in this infrastructure came about. So I, I tell that story through tracing the transformation from Sets et al., which was an informal, youth-based, almost volunteer-based system as it gets regularized and the workers start mobilizing and organizing and unionizing and start, you know, professionalizing, as you said, and demanding, um, you know, demanding uh, that they be uh, better treated and, and, and demanding better labor rights, et cetera. So that transformation, I think, is a really key transformation in the infrastructure. And I'm thinking of, of it as an infrastructural, you know, tectonic transformation, that I think helps us to think about infrastructure in general in very different ways that, you know, can help us in, in other contexts and, you know, thinking about different places. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, thanks for that. I think um, one of the things that I appreciated a lot about this chapter was just um, your descriptions of the really intimate articulations between human bodies and their labor and what we might think of as the sort of typical components of infrastructure. Um, so for instance, you write a lot about the garbage trucks and how, um, you know, they drive through the streets and then the people who work on them will like, you know, um, I think you said they blow a whistle and then folks bring out their trash from their houses. And then, um, there's also this, um, fact that as the, as the trucks themselves are, um, not a very sturdy physical infrastructure. In many cases, they're old, they're kind of falling apart. Um, and they can pose, 
um, certain kinds of threats to the people who work on them. It can be dangerous at times. Um, but at the same time, it's also um, an opportunity for people to exercise their um, creativity. And you have this great phrase, salvage bricolage, that comes up a few times, um, talking about the ways that people uh, make it work, you know, in um, in systems where and contexts where they aren't necessarily given a lot to work with. Absolutely. I mean, part of the um, you know, part of the intervention here is is a conversation that I've I've been part of for a while, but you know, with scholars of African urbanism that I think are really shifting the way that we think about cities in the global south and cities in general through a new way of thinking about infrastructure, but also through a new way of thinking about um, sort of practice in the city. And I mean, I see that literature as kind of bifurcated. There's a, a real kind of positive, sort of overly optimistic side to it, where there's this literature sort of championing the incredible like innovation and creativity of kind of African entrepreneurs and laborers who sort of in the absence of infrastructure or in the absence of capital or in the absence of, you know, um, formal institutions or organizations, et cetera, are creatively organizing um, in ways that are incredibly vibrant and productive and meaningful and um, developmental and all of that. And then there's another side that's, that's much more negative that sort of says, well, that is a kind of form of sort of exploitation that we see present in the slums um, where in the absence of sort of capital um, people are, are, are forced to, you know, sort of prey on themselves, et cetera. And, and I think, I think both of those sides are really just inadequate. And, and what I'm trying to do here is to really sort of bring out the opportunity that is posed by this degradation of this already rickety secondhand infrastructure as people mobilize in all of these interesting, creative, innovative ways to kind of buttress the infrastructure to become infrastructural. And that we have to pay attention to that as a form of, expertise as a form of material practice as you know as infrastructural but that at the same time we have to recognize the intense burdens that that requires of the body and of the mind and what that means for you know these already degraded um bodies and um you know um subjects who you know in the kind of governing through disposability form of 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 governing that we're seeing in the, in the wake of austerity um, that, you know, that, that, that this is a, a doubling of disposability, you know, that this is an incredibly dire burden um, for these workers. So holding those kind of two into tension, like recognizing the creativity and the expertise involve the infrastructuralness of, of this social practice while also recognizing that it is incredibly unjust, incredibly materially, um, uh, you know, painful and burdensome and, and, and precarious for these workers. Um, and a piece of that is also just to, you know, to point out that I'm not just talking about the workers, I'm expanding the realm of infrastructure of the trash sector in this case to the household, as you mentioned at the beginning, to sort of also take into to account the myriad ways that women in particular in Dakar households are rendering themselves infrastructural in the wake of, you know, this system not functioning very well to keep it up, to buttress it, um, to make it work um, in collaboration and solidarity even with with the trash workers. And we can see that as a kind of form of 
um, you know, as a sort of expression of the, um, you know, reconfiguration of social reproductive laborers in the era of austerity. Um, but that also needs to be attended to when we think about the burdens that are borne by particular members of society in the wake of these big sort of political economic and, and um, yeah, political economic changes. Yeah. And one of the things that I want to highlight about what you said just now is that, um, of course, the physical burdens are very real, but the mental burdens are real as well. And I really appreciated your description of how, um, you know, especially for women who are tasked with um, the household management of garbage, um, there's a lot of thought and care and effort that has to go into um you know, sort of planning like, okay, well, the trash truck will probably not come for another five days. But in the meantime, I have these like stinky fish guts and like, how am I going to dispose of them in a way that's, um, that's safe and that's not going to be sort of noxious to, to the members of my household and to our neighbors. Um, it really is, um, a, a mental, um, effort that these folks have to make in order to, um, deal again with the sort of, um, gaps and failures and precarities in the infrastructural systems that are available. So yeah, as you're saying, um, this is a way that people are almost turning themselves into a part of the infrastructure um, in order to make up for those gaps and shortcomings in the system. Um, so I think that's actually a nice segue to chapter three, Technologies of, com of Community, um, because you talk quite a bit in that chapter about um, women's labor specifically in managing um, neighborhood-based uh, projects. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so this is the chapter um, that where I actually look at, you know, a, a few of the projects that have sprung up in the periphery of Dakar that have sort of aimed to completely sideline the municipal trash sector completely by the institution of NGO and CBO community-based organization run um, community-based trash uh, collection. And this one project that I studied in the peripheral neighborhood of Yoff um, was one in which neighborhood women were enlisted in a, a you know, in a fairly forceful way, um, to be their municipal housekeepers. Um, and I'm drawing on a, another scholar who's described, um, gendered garbage work in that way. Um, and they end up becoming sort of being rendered disposable, not just through becoming their neighbor, their neighbor's trash collectors, which is stigmatized in its own right, but also, you know, by the fact that it, they weren't remunerated for this, but also, by virtue of the fact that they were all um, sort of poor um, working class women who sort of didn't have any other options. So they were sort of like triple stigmatized by this work that they were doing and suffered quite a lot materially from this work um, that was, you know, um, you know, not protected in any, in any way. They were just walking from, from door to door. But it's an interesting example because it was a very short-lived um, project that was spearheaded by Senegal's sort of best and best known, you know, best, re most respected NGO um, that, that, and I think the failure of that project to really take root um, is an indicator that, you know, that, that sort of thing is just not tolerated anymore, you know, like 20 years into a neoliberal rhetoric around participation and, people see right through it now. I mean, not everyone saw through it, um, but certainly 
um, the, the project didn't last very long and it became clear that a municipal approach to, um, you know, governing and, and servicing the whole of the city was much more optimal than a sort of fragmented piecemeal approach to community-based participatory approaches, even if the municipal sector had its own sort of version of participation. Um, so, you know, gender came into play in this realm quite a bit um, to sort of justify women's position as municipal housekeepers um, because of their natural role as um, sort of managers of the domestic space and thus managers of domestic waste in Senegal. Um, so that was seen as sort of a non-issue, but in the end, um, you know, became a sort of key factor that I think led to the demise of this kind of horse-drawn cart, um, you know, uh, um, 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 you know, what do they call it? Um, anyways, the horse-drawn cart vision of what development should be a kind of appropriate technology, but that, you know, regresses back to, you know, gestures back to a kind of traditionalist view of, of African cities, et cetera, as kind of always rural. Yeah. Um, and a, and a traditionalist vision of women as well, right? Like, um, as you say, like associating them with this naturalized role of, um, keepers of the home, um, and then, of course, uh, it's uh, <laughs> I've seen this in my own work in Nepal, and I'm sure it happens uh, elsewhere in the world as well. But just this rhetoric of empowerment for women of like, oh, we are um, actually asking them to do this um, job for which they're not really going to be paid and their neighbors are not going to like them because they um, they come around and they collect these user fees. So um, not only are they like the trash collectors, they're also tax collectors in a sense. So um, it's really a heavy burden that's being put on these women in the name of, oh, we're empowering them. <laughs> and um, I was, yeah, just sort of ruefully shaking my head at the, the familiarity of, of that kind of rhetoric. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and that precipitated all manner of problems at the level of the household. I mean, literally like marital problems were stemming from the fact that, you know, these new user fees were being levied on, on, on families for waste collection, which is differentially valued in a very gendered way at the level of the household. And people, of course, have different buying power, different availability of disposable income that they can pay this kind of tax with. Um, so it's just, you know, all manner of sort of conflict at the home stimulated by this wider, supposedly glorious idea of participation and empowerment. Yeah. And I think that really shows why, um, you know, after a few decades of this um, structural adjustment and neoliberalization and um, sort as you said, sort of a glorious rhetoric of, oh, participation in community, um, people get wise to this and they see through it and they begin to refuse their participation um, in ways that are um, very meaningful. They have a really visible um, impact on the city um, with these sanitation worker strikes and then um, people piling up their trash in the streets, acting in solidarity with the trash um, sanitation workers. Um, so yeah, it was just, um, Really, that's one thing I like so much about the the story of this book is that it captures that whole um, scope of um, the sort of neoliberal vision being presented and then people um, trying to adjust with it and cope with it in various ways. And then finally um, reaching a point where they're pretty fed up with it. Um, um, I also wanted to touch on um, the the sort of 
framework of Islamic piety, um, which is not something we've talked about in the interview so far, but it um, surfaces throughout the book. And then it's really important in chapter four, um, which you call the piety of refusal. Um, so can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like what um, what is there um, informing um, the work of trash collection um, through a, a sort of Islamic moral framework? I mean, this was one of the more surprising elements of the research. It was certainly something I hadn't anticipated now as a much more seasoned ethnographer and discardian, <laughs> we like to call ourselves a discardian, you know, geographer of trash or social scientist of trash. Um, I, I would probably look for this more now, but certainly at the time I, I was surprised to find how much worker, the, the municipal trash workers were describing their labor in terms of it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's spiritual value. And after a while started to kind of reckon with the fact that this actually was a, a major factor that was at the heart of this dynamic social movement and why it was able to sort of against all odds sort of lead the urban public services sort of out sort of away from austerity into, you know, a, um, a, a less austere sort of vision of, of urban politics and urban public services. And I, and, and, you know, basically what I found was that, and this was quite gendered as well. I only found this amongst the male trash workers um, <clears throat> who are about 80% of the um, collectors and sweepers in, in Dakar that they very much framed their labor and its value as an, as an act of piety, as, as, as um, very spiritually important, both on personal terms, um, that the act of kind of purifying the urban public space as a kind of Islamic environmental police force, some, some people described it, you know, that that was an, uh, that that was a sort of religious spiritual um, experience and that that encouraged them kind of kept them going against all odds, even though, these were really tough jobs and, you know, they weren't um, valued very much for them. Um, but that it also worked on a sort of more general kind of societal level um, as a key feature of why this, the trash workers union was able to kind of shift and de- minimize the kind of stigma associated with being a trash worker in Dakar is they, they use that as part of their platform in their labor movement was, you know, sort of calling on the sort of religious moral compass of, of their Senegalese brethren, of the people they serve in the city of their brothers and, and, and families, um, calling on, on people to support them and, and recognize the value of their labor because of its spiritual value as an act of purification of the urban public space as an act of valuation of a degraded urban environment. Um, And I think that was really important in the sort of political shift that we see in the sort of government officials and institutions, like finally kind of like recognizing the value of trash work and starting to um, respond to the, the the unions um, demands and, you know, this, this, kind of epic signing of the um, collective bargaining agreement in the early um, in, you know, around 2012, I believe it was um, that finally conferred, you know, much better benefits to the workers, medical benefits and vacation benefits and banking benefits um, and much higher salaries. And I think part of that was about a kind of general 
transformation in the view of the Dakarwa towards the trash collectors who had always been quite stigmatized through this idea of these workers as, as, as pious and doing this incredible service in a context, uh, in a very religious context um, um, where um, prayer is important, prayer in the public space is important, the urban public sphere is often sort of framed in religious terms. And so if we could sort of you know, the idea was to reframe the labor of purifying the urban public sphere through its spiritual import. Yeah. And that came through really nicely in the chapter when you were talking about um, trash collectors um, refusing to become refuse, right? Like refusing to be treated like trash themselves because their work of cleaning could be morally valued um, through this framework of Islamic piety. And even, um, I believe you had a quote from someone saying, like, you know, even if I miss some prayers while I'm out, you know, doing my work of collecting trash, like, that's okay because I'm, you know, I'm doing um, God's work and this cleaning project is is something that's, like, morally um, valued in and of itself. So I'm curious, um, as we're recording this interview, you're actually in Dakar, um, and I'm what it, what is trash collection like these days? Um, what have you been seeing? Um, and you know, it was really it's great to hear that you know in 2012, sanitation workers won all these rights and protections. Um, but has that made material difference in the life of the city that you've noticed? Well, I, I mean, I certainly the my interlocutors within the trash union, within the, the trash sector, certainly do not believe their battle is won. Um, and it continues on and they, you know, are underpaid for the work that they do and understaffed and they don't have enough protective equipment and the trucks are still um, rickety. Um, and there still is a devolution of this infrastructure onto laboring bodies, but they're in a much better position than they were. I think they feel that it's kind of stagnated since the signing of the collective bargaining agreement. Uh, their salaries haven't gone up that much. Um, you know, the, the size of the, of the sector has really stagnated. So they're doing more work per person. Um, and, you know, so that, and that intersects with, a you know, a lot of um, sort of big political questions around the, again, competition between the municipal state and the national state and these important political personalities. Um, the, the mayor of Dakar who spearheaded those changes and was very much uh, seen as a kind of friend to the trash workers um, has been in jail now for a while. He was jailed by the governing um, party um, before he was able to run for president. He was going to run for president. So, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely like a big political story to be told uh, about why the gains haven't been, you know, sort of as full or as fast as, as they, you know, they would hope the workers would have hoped. Um, but I do think that they're in a better position. They do have the kind of ear of the government. There haven't been strikes for a number of years. Um, and the city's cleaner. It's a lot cleaner um, than in those moments, especially those incredibly insalubrious moments of striking and dumping and trash revolts and all of that. Um, so, you know, that's kind of where it's at at this point is, is sort of more of the same having, you know, they've accrued a number of benefits, but haven't sort of haven't made it uh, to where they want to be. Um, but I'm here working on a a different project that's related. Um, should I talk a little bit about that? Yeah, please do. 
Okay. Um, so in a way it's kind of the sequel, um, because, so I had a sort of little interim period where I, I wrote about hip hop in Dakar, um, as another very important formative social movement of youth, um, in the city. Um, but then I just, the, the call of, of discard just, uh, carried her the smell, I should say, just, just sort of brought me back. So I'm, I'm back in, back in trash and working on my next book project, which is a study of the dump, Dakar's dump, which is one of the biggest open air dumps in sub-Saharan Africa. It's been around since 1968. It is the exclusive dump for Dakar. And it is home to, it hosts, I should say, about 2,000 um, trash workers. Uh, sorry, trash pickers, I should say. So recuperateur in French, um, or reclaimers, we could say, um, who have built since 1968 an incredibly complex, intricate, valuable recycling network that extends all across the country and even internationally um, networks recycling almost everything of value that that ends up at this dump. So I'm studying the dump now. So this is sort of if the first project was the formal municipal trash sector, this is kind of the informal side, what happens to the trash once it gets to the dump. There is this army of workers transforming it then in back into value who are incredibly, incredibly stigmatized, even more invisible, um, even, you know, less well-viewed um, than the trash workers of Dakar used to be. Um, and there's an interesting thing that is is happening, which is that, the, so the state, this is like, a this dump is basically a blight on the sort of urban imagination, on the developmental imagination of Dakar, um, on the modernist vision of, of the state. Um, and so it has tried, the state has tried over decades to close it, and has always failed. And and the biggest attempt was um, about maybe 10 years ago when with a World Bank loan that was tied to some other major infrastructural improvements, they tried to close it and relocate it to um, a, a, you know, a, a neighborhood sort of farther out um, in the suburbs of Dakar that refused it. So there was a sort of major NIMBY um, protest that happened there. That site was sabotaged and the the pickers themselves, the reclaimers themselves at the dump also resisted the, clo- the closure of the dump. So the state sort of had to back off and, and, and stopped. And then the latest attempt is not to close the dump, but is to valorize or valorize the dump. So, mm. which is an interesting discursive shift, right? The yeah. idea that a big old, not sanitary landfill, unplanned, sauvage, you know, as you say in French, um, landfill that has, you know, no lining, no cap, no limits, no, you know, fence, no anything that, that there's this idea that it can be upgraded and made modern. Right. Um, and so that's what I'm looking at now is what, what will this upgrade process entail? And in particular, what kind of impacts will it have on labor and on this incredibly intricate world of, recycling that exists on the dump, but then extends out, you know, all the way to China, Uh, these life worlds that exist on the dump with, uh, you know, a a good number, we don't know the number, but it's probably in the hundreds of people actually living there. Um, And so the transformations have not actually started taking place. They're in the kind of preliminary phases of framing that project and deciding what they're going, exactly how the upgrade is going to take shape. But I'm, so I'm sort of doing a before, like what are the life worlds on the dump? What kinds of material expertise? What are the 
um, practices and beliefs and, and um, forms of, of sociality that we see on the dump. Um, and then I'll be kind of tracing what happens as that shifts and changes with these tectonic changes that are underway, um, where they will likely close it, at least um, build a wall around it and, um, and decide who gets access to it or not and significantly shape how labor, the labor of recycling takes place there. And probably it will be quite mechanized and, um, yeah, it will just radically shift the, the way that the dump operates at this point. Well, I'm glad you're doing your research at this point so that you can document the transformation, sort of the before and, and then the after. Um, I can see how this, <laughs> uh, I can see how it's hard to walk away from a project like this because trash really does go everywhere, it reaches into everyone's lives and in, into some people's lives very deeply. Um, I think somewhere in the book you said that uh, something like, um, I'm paraphrasing, but um, garbage is the past, the present, and the future of the city, um, and not only for Dakar, but in, in all urban environments. And that really resonated with me. And so I just wanted to thank you for this book, which gave me so much to think about. And I'm sure um, it has for our listeners as well. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to highlight or mention before we wrap it up? Um, well, I guess I would just add that for those listeners who are interested, there is this um, kind of germinal interdisciplinary field called discard studies that is taking root. Um, and I'm certainly not its creator. There were many talented people before me who've been talking about tri- trash for a long time and talking about discard more generally and, you know, disposability and the sort of broader geographies of, of waste and consumption and disposal. Um, but it is starting to kind of crystallize into a field. Um, there is a, a wonderful discard studies blog um, that was started at NYU and now is um, is elsewhere is is you know sort of located elsewhere. But we've got a kind of germinal discard studies collaborative group at NYU, myself and some other discardian scholars um, who are really trying to kind of foment you know foment and stimulate and catalyze research around waste as archive, disposability as window into um, social process, into um, you know economic political process. So, uh, you know, just a shout out to the kind of growing field of discard studies. Um, but thank you so much. It was really a, a joy, um, to share with you this work and, um, yeah, thank you for reading it. Oh yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show. And, um, to our listeners, I encourage you to go check out, um, those resources, discard studies as a growing field. You heard it here first, if you haven't heard it already. Um, and I do encourage you to check out this wonderful book. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Fredericks. Thanks so much. That was my conversation with Dr. Rosalind Fredericks about her new book, Garbage Citizenship, Vital Infrastructures of Labor in Dakar, Senegal, which came out from Duke University Press in 2018. Um, It's a wonderful read, and I really hope that you will check it out. Um, Until next time, I'm Dana Dennis, and thank you for listening to the New Books Network Anthropology Channel. Bye. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.